This week's podcast is sponsored by VeloFix, the mobile bike shops that bring a mechanic and everything needed to fix your bike straight to your home or office. To win a free VeloFix tune-up plus cables and housing and a pair of pedals, head to VeloFix.com slash VeloNews. That's VeloFix.com slash VeloNews. Welcome back, everybody, to the Mellow News Podcast. I am sitting around a small white table in a fluorescent lit room somewhere in the Messe in Dusseldorf. Uh, I'm Kaylee Fretz, senior editor at Velo News. Here with me, Andrew Hood, Euro Hoodie, our European correspondent, and Dan Cavallari, our tech editor. How are you, Hoodie? Feeling pretty groovy here at the start of the 2017 uh, Tour de France. It's uh, it's an interesting vibe to be here in Germany. A little bit different. I mean, right inside this convention center, uh, you know, the luminaries are walking by. Uh, Bernard Hinault is just behind us right now, and uh, you see uh, Raymond Poulidor is around. So it feels like the tour inside this building, but once we go out in the streets, uh, you almost wouldn't know the tour is even here. Yeah, it's a little bit weird. I mean... Utrecht two years ago, where the Tour de France started, uh, that was, I mean, that was insane. We were in the Netherlands. Obviously, the Dutch people are super, super stoked on bike racing of pretty much any type. It seemed like the tour was in the air. It was, it was, it was floating around uh, like so much glitter. And here, not so much. We're not. We haven't seen much, uh, much tour hullabaloo here in Dusseldorf. Yeah, it's interesting. I think Germany has a different relationship with cycling in general. There was a little stink up even before this tour started over uh, the, the the fact that riders like Jan Ulrich and uh, Andreas Kloden and some of the dark figures of the dirty old days were not even invited to participate in this uh, Tour de France. Whereas uh, Lance Armstrong weighed in. Yeah, Lance, we had a little <laughs> some weigh in there and kind of kicked up a little storm there. And Marcel Kittel uh, had some opinions about that as well, thinking that Jan does deserve a second chance because he was obviously the first and only German rider to win the tour mm -hmm. but on the caveat that that Jan kind of comes clean I mean uh, that's one thing uh, uh, that's true I think uh, with, with Ulrich and some of these guys that did race in those days is some have been forced to tell their stories others have been able to skate and I think Ulrich kind of is in that second camp yeah hasn't really told the full story yet and I think I think that uh, well that's what Marcel Kittel said is that he wants the full story before Ulrich can be fully welcomed back into both German cycling and just sort of pro cycling as a whole. But we are seeing uh, there are some other sort of well-known doping figures still wandering around the Tour de France. So <laughs> I won't name any names, but uh, they are definitely here. And so a bit, of a, a bit of a double standard, maybe. But anyway, we are here. It is about 24 hours before the first stage of the Tour de France, 14-kilometer time trial in and around Dusseldorf. We're here to dive straight into the Tour de France. So I think one of the primary storylines that we've been getting over the last couple of days, because we've spent a bunch of time going to various press conferences, going to team hotels, you know, chat with riders, chat with directors, chat with just about everybody we can possibly chat with, is the fact that we really have two riders at the very top of the of the potential winners list. It's a Port versus Froome battle, as far as almost everybody is concerned. Yes, there are other names in there. The other riders appear to be mostly just aiming at the podium at this point. Port versus Froome. What have we heard about this rivalry in the last week, Hoodie? Well, I think it's an interesting uh, uh, development how the ascending f Port has surpassed uh, Nairo, uh, especially in the context that Richie has never even finished on one Grand Tour podium ever. And Nairo has been really the most consistent Grand Tour rider. You could even argue more so than even Froome because Nairo has won the Giro and the Welta and finished on three Tour podiums in three starts. But you're exactly right. The big buzz is here is that Richie is the man who is, presents the biggest, uh, stiffest challenge to Froome Dog. And that actually, I think, might play into Nairo's hands because he's kind of been, had all that pressure piled on him ever since he was second in his first tour in 2013. So that might actually help uh, Nairo because he can kind of come in as a little bit of a smoky this year. So you just went to Nairo's press conference. You just actually, about an hour 
ago, got out of that. Uh, they say anything in particular about uh, about the Froome Port rivalry and how that fits in, or, or was that not addressed? Uh, it really didn't come up because <laughs> when you go to a Nairo Quintana press conference, it's unlike any press conference that you really go to because the questions are dominated by uh, the Colombian press corps. Ah. And the <laughs> Colombian press corps, you know, they treat Nairo like he is the king of Colombia. And the questions they ask him are so fawning <laughs> that, uh, you, you know, sometimes it's hard to, to really get uh, a good feel because they'll be asking Nairo to send a message of condolences to victims of an avalanche in the Andes or, you know, what does he think about the latest uh, political developments? I shouldn't laugh at that, but that's you shouldn't that's laugh at that. That, that shows you kind of his, where he is yeah. kind of in the perspective uh, within Colombian society. So, but there were a few pointed questions about tactics and, and mm-hmm. the big talking point during the Quintana press conference, which we'll talk about a little bit here later, is just how this kind of unpredictable course um, doesn't really favor Quintana. Um, but so they said they basically have to throw the script out uh, of the. Uh, but but Quintana singled out Froome as the as he thinks he's Froome is still the man to beat in Quintana's eyes. Yeah, I mean I think that I think that actually most most of us agree. Most of the uh, the pundits that we surround ourselves with inside the Tour de France press room tend to agree that while you know basically we've put Port on this pedestal because because he had such a good. Dauphiné. He appeared to be the strongest rider at the Dauphiné, but we've learned over and over and over again that that doesn't actually mean all that much. Yes, winning the Dauphiné has been a good indicator of form for Froome himself. Uh, he's obviously won He's won the Dauphiné more often than not when he's also won the Tour de France. However, if you go back in history, the Dauphiné is only... It's not the best indicator of who's actually going to win the Tour de France. So do you think that we've, we've overhyped Port a little bit. I mean, we were both in the BMC press conference yesterday. Uh, they seemed pretty confident. However, there were definitely some pointed questions about Port's team in particular. Do we think that Port's team is strong enough to fend off the Skybots? That is a good question. I think that uh, on paper, the uh, the Sky, the Froome Fortress, Froome Sky Armada. I think on paper, just plus in terms of experience, I think still has a step up on what uh, BMC is bringing to the table. It was interesting what Okowitz said at the start of the press conference, how he said those nine riders were the nine riders they had singled out back in December at team meetings that would be going to the tour. And they all kind of made it through the spring. They all made, they got their power numbers and and followed their program. And they're all at this tour to help ride for Richie. Um, Having said that, Richie, I think, has a pretty solid team. They have some good, solid riders for the flats and experienced riders with the exception of uh, Stefan Kuhn, who makes his uh, uh, tour debut, the Swiss rider everyone thinks can be kind of the next big star there. Um, but, you know, I think, I think Richie, you know, he's never even been on a Grand Tour podium. And we saw how, uh, you know, he can get caught out uh, before it's happened at the Dauphiné. It's happened at other Grand Tours. He's tried to be a leader. Um, and even I think it seemed like to me they were almost downplaying the expectations, saying our goal was the podium. Right. Whereas all season they're saying, oh, we're racing to win. But well, now they came here and said, oh no, we're just going to go for the podium. <laughs> and we've heard that there might be a nice, uh, a nice big bonus if he just reaches the podium. So a little bit less incentive to be super aggressive and go for the victory at that point. Again, that is just a rumor. But this is a podcast. We can we can rumor monger all we want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, his team is definitely strong. Uh, they've got Caruso. They've got DeMarkey in the mountains. Uh, they have definitely they have Greg Van Avermaet to sort of shepherd him through all of these various sort of transition-y type stages. And again, we will we are going to dig a little bit more into the route later in the podcast. We'll, we'll, we'll avoid that too much of that discussion right now. Uh, I, I'm inclined to agree with you. I think that you know, it is important to remember that this is a rider who's never been on a Grand Tour podium. As you just said, that is an important distinction uh just you can have all the form in the world at the Dauphiné and it does not mean you can pull it together for three weeks and I think that that Port really has a lot to prove uh on that front and I I also agree with the hoodie that this could be this could be a way in for another rider whether it's Quintana or maybe Contador has his old his old flair back maybe Bardet is suddenly not a terrible time trialist uh there's only 23 
is it twenty? No, sorry, thirty-seven k of of time trials this uh, this year. That's a twenty-three k time trial at the end of the race and fourteen on Saturday. So yeah, maybe maybe a rider like Bardet can stick it to him. I think I'm, that I think that we need to look a little bit broader than a Froome versus Port direct rivalry for this tour. I'm really curious to see how Sky and Froome race this tour because. As much as people like to criticize Sky as being bots and you know Froome, <laughs> the kinda, Death Star, yeah, kind of <laughs> Froome just riding this this kind of uh, you know this death tempo that no one can stay with him. You know, you really actually, I think that's that's kind of a narrow view of what Sky and Froome have done over the last couple of years. It seems to me that every year uh, when they come to the tour, they bring a team and a tactic to win that year's particular tour. Like last year's tour, you saw Froome. Um, really taking it early to Nairo in ways that he was completely off balance. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the the famous downhill attack, the attacks on the flats. Um, Froome was much more of a versatile rider last year. And I think that reflected just the course that the the way the course was set up. And this year's course being so atypical, uh, I think is going to produce some atypical tactics, even from Sky. You know, I don't think we're going to see, I think we're going to see an aggressive Sky because they know that if they just do wait until the Azward or these kind of two, three big summit finishes, that it might not work in uh, their favor. Yeah. They might want to knock uh, Froome and, and these guys off balance. So you might see, I think, riders like Froome even being hyper-aggressive as well as, you know, if it's a top-form contador, that's his style of racing. Let's just take advantage of where every opportunity presents itself. Let's talk about contador. Uh, he is not... He has not shown the form to win the Tour de France in quite some time at this point. But there's also still, you know, there's still a possibility that he retires at the end of the season, that this could be his last Tour de France. What do we think about Alberto coming into this tour? What have we, what have we seen from him? What, do we, what can we expect? Yeah, I mean, Alberto, he's been, uh, you know, really chasing that. You know, he wants more than anything to win one more tour. That's what's been driving him. That's why he's racing this year. You know, he's won the Vuelta. He's won the Giro. You know, after his uh, controversial Kalimbuterol case in 2010, but ever since then, his focus has really been on. He, you know, he wants to win one more tour, and he, you know, there was a few years there where I think he had really good form, and, and uh, especially in 2014 when Froome crashed out. I mean, it was just there sitting on the golden platter for for Contador to win, and then he crashes. So. Um, and then 2015, he tried the double, and then last year, you know, he crashed early in that first week. So Froome, I mean, so Contador has not really had a clean shot, uh, no pun intended. <laughs> he has not had a clean shot at the tour for several years, I'd Zing. say. <laughs> Zinger there. Uh, he has not had a clean shot to the uh, to the tour, I'd say, you know, since uh, going back. 2011, 2012. Which is a long time ago now. Which is a long time ago. Turns out we're getting old. Yeah, Yeah. we're getting older. He's getting old. (laughs) He's getting old. 34. Um, But Contador this year kind of puts everything into the tour basket. And he's been pretty consistent all year. He was second, in, I think, at every race. I mean, he, he was very close to, I think the stat was less than 45 seconds that he lost two or three at least one-week stage races. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, <laughs> He does. He, his aggressive style has uh, is animated a ton of races lately, but not tipped quite in his favor. You're right. It's been a couple seconds. There was like three or four different stage races, which combined he lost the lead by like five seconds or something like that. Uh, just an absolutely incredible stat, and you know, it proves that uh, just a second here or there. That's the difference between us thinking that Contador is, you know, an outside chance for a podium, and maybe considering him as a real as a real contender. Just a couple seconds here or there. Speaking of Contador and his Trek Segafredo team, uh, well, they had the doping positive uh, right before the Great race. Great way to start the tour. Great way to start the tour. Uh, Cardoso got that word coming down earlier in the week uh the general vibe around that has been pretty interesting i I think that that would have it would have been an uproar even a couple years ago um i think there's something about the fact that most of the punditry like ourselves tend to think that the the sport is cleaner than it used to be lends itself to the hypothesis that cardoso was sort of a lone wolf acting on his own and for some reason that creates less of a of a furor furor <laughs> less of less of a stink for some reason that creates less of a stink than 
when we when we tend to think that that a whole team would be would be doping yeah i think it also uh reflects a little bit about that organization uh you know luca gercelina is the general manager there and he's been around a long time he's been on the kind of the right side of this battle for many years i mean he used to work for the mape uh training uh, institute there with uh, aldo sazi separate from the mape team <coughs> mape from the team yeah which mape was training not center as clean yeah <laughs> well yeah uh, but the, the mape tra- the training center in italy uh, aldo sazi was one of the kind of pioneers in in training and trying to uh, help cycling get on the right track back back in the dirty old days and and Gertrilena was kind of a de- disciple of, of uh, Aldo Sazi and uh, I think most people inside the sport see uh, Gertrilena as a, as a stand-up guy and so uh, that's another reason why I think people can maybe you know if you see that that maybe you can just believe that yeah it's like a lone wolf thing or um, but it's hard to get your head around it that 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 people would uh, you know because I think everyone, the most shocking thing was, I mean, he's still taking EPO? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's not that uh, peop- we're, not, we're not so naive to think that people are doping. But, I mean, that's, that's old school. And, and uh, you know, we've had some discussions about the uh, veracity of the EPO test. But, man, you know, you get popped for EPO. It's not like it's a, you can't get a false positive. It's like you have it or you don't. Yeah, it's pretty much it's, uh, according to uh, the literature which I've been digging into a little bit in the last couple of days, it seems like it's basically impossible to get a false positive for, for EPO. The way that the test works right now, it's a urine test. Um, and so, you know, there is a, still a chance that uh, that Cardosa's B sample comes back because the test is not perfect. It, it, it pulls up false negatives pretty frequently, actually. They're unable to find EPO when they should be able to. Mm. However, the fact that the A sample is uh, is positive, yeah, I, I mean, this is just my my opinion, but if the B sample comes back negative, that's just a bit of luck for, for Cardoso. Um, mm. Yeah, and it, it is. it hasn't been sort of the overriding topic of discussion here at the Tour de France, which again, I, I find kind of interesting. And I think it's basically because, uh, because we've been able to sort of sequester it away as this, just this one guy who made a rather, a rather large mistake. The other topic of conversation <laughs> with Trek Segafredo on a much, much happier note, uh, new white kits for Trek Segafredo. How exciting. That's now exciting. alone, alone, this would not be particularly interesting. However, we've seen new white kits brought to the fore uh, from a whole bunch of teams at the Tour de France, including Sky Trek. Uh, we're gonna have like a third of the peloton in basically all white at the Tour de France. That's gonna make uh, the helicopter shots a little bit interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we just ran into the uh, Trek uh, team spokesman. She was saying how. You know, the decision to ride in white was taken back in January. Uh, a lot of different considerations going into that decision why they changed the jersey color. Well, one thing that stood out interesting to me was, you know, they race red in the winter because it's better at kind of holding the heat and white during the hotter part of the year. It kind of reflects the heat. But to me, it goes back to the argument, a little bit off uh, subject here, but I think, uh, you know, why don't we have permanent numbers in cycling? It doesn't, then it wouldn't matter what color the jersey is, right? Because, <laughs> you know, if Alberto Caldador is always number nine. And there's and a it big nine on his back. Yeah, there's a big yeah. nine on his back. And I know that, okay, maybe every team will have a number nine, but all you have to say is, okay, Caldador, number nine on track. He's not number nine on AG2R. <laughs> you know, number nine on AG2R might be a different guy. But we got uh, some different well, but thoughts on that. Does that does that open it up to like a Mercator projection thing, where you know the the country is drawn bigger on the map, so people think it's more important, right? Same sort of thing. You get a low number, you get the number one, right? Everybody thinks you're a contender, you know. Well, but if number you get, one goes the world champ, okay, why? <laughs> what about number two? So you well, get no. world you get world <laughs> you get world champ one year, right? You're number one. We what about the next year? Dive straight down a rabbit hole right now. <laughs> a rabbit hole on this one. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, the idea, of course, I couldn't, you know, 23, you know, Jordan, man. I mean, 44, <laughs> Hank Aaron. And I think that's, you know, that's be a way, that be a way, I think an easy way for teams and cycling to engage with the public at a, at a you know, kind of a, a commercial level that would engage the public quite in an interesting way. There have been a couple of riders who, who really pushed for this as well. I think it was Pete Stetton actually most recently was mm-hmm. tweeting about it. Uh, I, I'm definitely, I am definitely in agreement that, you know, I think that numbers, why not, really? There's, there are, within the world tour in particular, yes, the, 
the wild cards make it a little bit tricky because then you open up the pool from you know from from a couple hundred riders to a thousand plus uh but i think you could just do it in the world tour and you know the, the wild card teams that show up to the tour de france every year they just get a temporary number they just get their tour de france number right i think it'd be i think it'd be great I could find out what their uh what their lucky numbers are too yeah yeah <laughs> we know what pizzatos would be uh if you think you know what pisatos would be tweet at us <laughs> at felonies this week's podcast is brought to you by health iq a life insurance company that rewards you for getting off the couch and onto your bike they spent years compiling data on healthy folks like us and are using it to provide special rates on life insurance for health conscious people that includes runners strength trainers cyclists even vegans we know our listeners ride so support the show and check out Health IQ's life insurance rates specifically for cyclists. Get a quote at healthiq.com slash velonews. All right, Dan. We are here at the Tour de France. You've been cruising around in our sweet, pearl white, rented Ford Focus. Uh, <laughs> I haven't crashed it yet. Have I not. almost hit a train. That's bad because it's in my name. Please do not hit anything. Uh... <laughs> What have you seen? You, you are a tech editor. What have we seen on the equipment front here at the Tour de France? What is new? What is exciting? What do we care about? What have I seen? I've seen a lot of stoplights. Uh, <laughs> it's not easy to get around Dusseldorf uh, in traffic, but uh, I did manage to get to uh, quite a few team uh, paddocks and, and service course. Uh, we've got a, lot of, a, a few new bikes, which is pretty cool. Uh, Specialized has a new Tarmac. Uh, SL6, I believe. Uh, drastic departure from the previous model uh, of uh, Tarmac. Uh, lots of aero el elements, and I, I spoke with Chris Yu today, who is a uh, lead engineer over there at Specialized, and he tells me that the, the whole idea here is to not compromise uh, anything. So they're, they're going for aero, they're going for lightweight, they're going for responsive, they're going for the whole package, and they say they have accomplished it. So you're telling me that a bike company says that their bike is the most awesome at everything? I know. I've never heard that before either uh it was new to me as well uh, which brings me to trek <laughs> who also has a new bike here the amonda is it also awesome it apparently does not compromise anything it combines everything <laughs> you get the point uh but both both good bikes uh pretty interesting stuff going on with both of them i actually have a first ride review of the trek amonda uh up on Velo News. uh it should be up today or tomorrow and our colleague Kristen legan also has a first ride of the uh the new tarmac so uh you can read our thoughts and, and make your own decisions there uh less uh less less on the, on the smaller company front argon 18 has a new galleon pro which i saw uh look bicycles has a 785 uez which i uh was fortunate enough to ride up alp duez uh just last week uh so lots of new bikes really cool uh, I've seen a couple new helmets. Trek has a new helmet, or excuse me, Bontrager has a new helmet. Uh, Giro has a new helmet, which they uh, wouldn't tell us much about, but apparently it replaces the air attack. Uh, so we're talking pretty aero. Uh, hopefully it breathes a lot better and uh, looks pretty cool. So there's, there's that. <laughs> looks better than the air attack. That yes. can't be too hard. Yeah, I tripped over the bar. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> But uh, the other big stories are, you know, disc brakes. Everybody's always asking about disc brakes. Have we seen any disc brakes? Is anybody going to be riding disc brakes? Disc brakes, disc brakes. Yeah, okay. Yes, we know. Disc brakes is a story. Uh, we have seen a couple disc brake bikes here. Uh, Cannondale will have one rider on a TT bike uh, with disc brakes. And not Taylor Finney. And not Andrew Tulansky, so not a TT rider that they actually want to go fast. Right. Yes. It's. It, I think that's the general consensus with disc brakes right now. Is I think teams are ready to start experimenting, but not with anybody who might have a chance to do win anything. To win anything. Yeah. <laughs> to be coarse about it. Yeah. Um, so uh, Betty will be riding disc brakes on his Super Slice. Uh, and we've also s s uh, seen and heard some rumors that Giant has a new Propel with disc brakes, and uh, Team Sunweb has, Sunweb has been doing some training rides on those bikes. Don't know if they're going to use it in the actual race, but uh, much to my surprise, it seems like teams are really considering using uh, disc brake bikes at the Tour de France this year. Um, and I, you know, I, I've spoken with Mavic Neutral Support. They're ready for that possibility. Uh, they were not expecting it, but uh, they are prepared just in case that does happen. What about 
clinchers. I was wandering around yesterday at the Cannondale camp chatting with uh, with Nate Brown, who we're actually we're going to hear from later, and we're going to hear from all month. Nate Brown's in his first Tour de France, and will be joining us on the podcast pretty regularly. Anyway, I was wandering around the Cannondale camp yesterday and spotted a bunch of clinchers on the TT bikes. Explain this to me. Clinchers are faster, uh, and we've talked at length about that at Velo News. Uh, the reason uh, a lot of pros stick with tubulars is because you can ride them flat. Uh, you, you get a flat on the course, you can still keep going. You don't have to worry about a bead unhooking. Uh, Mavic says they have a solution to this with their new tubeless system. Uh, you know, they're saying that you can run those flat and, and keep riding in much the same way you can on tubulars, but there's still a bead that hooks into a rim. Uh, you know, what happens when you corner? So generally speaking, racers stick to tubulars. However, uh, during TTs, uh, time trials, uh, a lot of guys uh, have gone to clinchers. Tony Martin's probably the most well-known. Uh, I did speak with uh, some some folks over at Bora Hansgro, and they're saying that uh, the team is going to be using clinchers uh, for the time trial uh, t- tomorrow, which is Saturday, stage one. Uh, so we're going to see a lot of clinchers. Uh, they're faster. Uh, they're, <laughs> quite frankly, they're easier to set up, which is not really much of a <laughs> concern for these guys. Uh, but, yes, we are going to see some clinchers. Um, I don't think we're going to see tubeless uh, yet. Uh, I think there's still too much of a risk there, especially for anybody who's really gunning for a win in a time trial. What's the risk? Uh, well, I mean, tubeless works well with mountain bikes because there's there's volume in that tire. You you put you know you put your sealant in, it coats really well. Uh, you're talking about lower pressures. I mean, there's there's a lot fewer. Uh, things that can go wrong essentially you know with with a road tire there's there's not a lot of volume in there uh there's a higher a tire pressure there's just a lot more things that can go wrong uh so i think to use tubeless at this point would still be a pretty huge risk for anybody who's got any uh inkling to to win a stage shimano told us about a power meter a while ago actually a really long time ago at this point do we see any of them any of them yet I've been to quite a few teams so far, and I have not seen it. Uh, I've ridden that power meter uh, back in January and was pretty excited about it. Uh, And I think everybody's pretty excited about it. I think the pros are also very excited about it and would love to use it. Uh, But I have not seen it. Uh, Most of the power meters I've seen have either the new Dura-Ace crank with uh, third-party power meters or uh, teams have reverted back to the previous generation uh, Shimano cranks. that's a good question. I know uh, the story has been so far from every manufacturer I've talked to is that there's been massive delays in the delivery of the new Shimano Dura-Ace. Uh, I don't know what uh, what is causing that, and it seems that manufacturers are also scratching their heads on that a little bit. Uh, but I have not seen the new power meter. We're seeing mixed uh, group sets, basically. We're seeing a mix of you know the new Shimano Dura-Ace derailers with old cranks. Uh, most teams are running the new shifters and, and things like that. I know the... Um, the uh, the new giant propel that I saw uh, is uh, is the full hydro kit, uh, but again, not the not the power meter. So I don't know I don't know what the delays are, uh, but I, I can sense the increasing frustration with both pros and with manufacturers. It's enough tech. Get out of here, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm out of here. Actually, no. We have one more tech thing. Oh. We do. Except it's not really a question for you. So. I was speaking with Jim Okowitz, who is the general manager of the BMC professional cycling team, uh, yesterday after the press conference, the BMC press conference, and we found out, and I kind of love this, that BMC, following two high-profile puncture incidents for their captain, Richie Port, one that lost him the Giro, and another that essentially booted him off the podium at the Tour de France last year, they've been doing... They've been at puncture camp. They've been in puncture class, puncture training. They, they have actually taken their nine rider, uh, their nine rider tour squad at the last couple training camps before the Tour de France, and made them practice giving Richie Port a wheel in the event of a puncture, which I kind of love. I chatted with Jim about this again at the uh, at the press conference on Thursday. Let's listen in. Look, uh, every other sport, also the military, you don't go to war and never shoot a gun. <laughs> so, uh, 
you know, we needed to learn how to do, where did we make a mistake last year on that stage? Who do you blame for it? Nobody knows. There was a comedy of other, all kinds of factors involved. But the one factor is, is that uh, as you watch these races, and they're so technical and so fast, and yet sometimes that car is not around. And so, and neutral service doesn't always have the right equipment. So you sort of have to count on your own people at the table here to, to make, make, make do with. So we, we put an action in place where they actually were racing by themselves and simulated flat tires. Whoever was closest changed the front wheel or the back wheel and put the water bottles and did whatever, pushed them off and go, you know? So, therefore, you're not just stopping on the side of the road and you got three guys going, who does what? What the hell is everybody, you know? You're, you're, you actually know what to do. There's designated people. A, A, B, and C. Yeah, there's an A, B, C. But it basically comes down to who's ever the closest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Richie knows what to do. Gets off the bike, takes the front wheel off, stands there, grab, you know, grab, uh, whatever, waits for the wheel change or bike change, and off they go, without panicking. Yeah. Because you know you can do it, and you know, in 12 seconds. It's simulation. You have to simulate everything you do in life, right? Otherwise, you don't. You're, the first time you just guess. Second time you might get a little better. But if you practice it few times you, you really get it down and they're not mechanics so you see it in the bike races I mean they they really there's a lot of scrambling around but if you know okay front rear wheel got to get another small sprocket take your time pull the wheel out wait you know push them off and go so different tasks to do so hopefully Richie Port does not uh, doesn't have a, a extremely untimely puncture again, which seems to be kind of his MO. He has these weird things that happen to him that keep him off Grand Tour podiums. But if he does, his team is ready. His team is totally ready. They, they, they've done their training. They can change a wheel in 12 seconds. It's what Jim Ockowitz said, uh, which is actually... Almost as fast as Formula One. Almost as fast as Formula One, which is actually, yeah, it's pretty impressive, you know? I, I think this is the sort of thing that, that teams should be doing. Uh, I did, I loved I loved Ockowitz's, uh, you, don't, uh, you don't go to war without shooting a, a gun line. I think that is, that's apropos. It's, it's relevant to this application. I think that teams are doing more and more things like this to really prepare for all eventualities. This one obviously doesn't take all that much time. Just do a bit of practice and, you know, learn how to get your team leader on their way. And make sure it's from your teammate, not from uh, <laughs> your buddy and a different team. Yes, because that will get you, was it two minute? Well, time. I think he got a minute at back in that Giro. Was it Giro. a minute? Yeah. Two, this is back at the Giro. Uh, Port took a wheel from a fellow Aussie that was not on his own team, got docked a minute, and it definitely uh, did some damage to his GC chances, as one would expect. Up next, and this is going to be the first of a couple of these installments. So we, this Tour de France, we have, uh, we've arranged to bring you a couple different people week in week out and the idea behind that is is to really get an idea of how uh, how the stress of the tour de france both athletic and otherwise you know sort of changes the uh changes the way that people function essentially so the first up is nate brown nate's in uh nate's a kennedale draypack rider had a really really good tour california uh he's here in his first Tour de France, his first ever Tour de France, and that's why we wanted to bring him into the podcast. So I caught up with Nate at a little press event at Cannondale on Thursday. Uh, let's listen to that real quick. I'm here with Nate Brown. Uh, Nate, why don't you why don't you set the scene for us a little bit here this morning? Uh, the scene is hustling and bustling with a lot of uh, journalists and and people wanting to uh, talk with the team. You know, this is my first tour, so it's kind of crazy. I haven't seen this in any other race before. <laughs> it's a little overwhelming. <laughs> so yeah, that's why, we, that's why we're here chatting with you because this is your first Tour de France. Uh, you've obviously proven your worth elsewhere throughout the season. You, had, uh, you, had a, you actually had a really good spring, so you're here for the first time. You're here at the Tour de France for the first time. Let's talk about what that feels like. So first of all, when did you get the phone call and who made the phone call, letting you know that you were going to be on the squad this year? I got the phone call from Charlie Wigelius. He, uh, they sent me to an altitude camp, so I kind of had an idea that I would be going. And he called me in the middle of the camp, and it was one of those moments where he said, Nate, 
I'm calling you about the tour and he stopped and it could go either way at that point it could be like no you're not on the team or yes you are and I kind of froze and they said you've made the team all your hard work has paid off and for me it's probably the biggest moment of my career so far I've always wanted to do the tour it's been a childhood dream and I'm to make that come true is amazing so how how long ago was that when exactly did they tell you that was two weeks ago I think less a week and a half ago so pretty late really I mean they kind of have a long team they probably have what 12 guys or so that are that are looking at doing the Tour de France uh were you was there any point in the spring where you were concerned you weren't going to make it well the funny thing is I don't even know if I was on the team in the spring I don't know if I was in consideration but I I told the team look I really want to do the tour and I set out to prove to them that I was capable of doing the tour and after California is when Charlie came to me and said, hey, look, you know, you're on the long list. And I just, you know, I just kept racing my bike and kept doing what I do best. And I was hoping that the team would choose me and they did. It all worked out. You had a really good California. Uh, you think that was really the turning point? And then the, by extension, did you come into the Tour of California flying with that in mind? <laughs> Uh, yes and no. I came into California to support Andrew the best I could. I really wanted to have a good California, and it didn't so much. It just happened to go hand in hand with making the tour team. And and then I had a good Dauphiné, and it just you know worked out. And now we're here, and uh, we're actually going to be catching up with you throughout the Tour de France. Uh, I think probably every Monday and Friday as we put out our Velenews podcast episodes. Uh, we will be having you record yourself most of the time, which I think could be somewhat entertaining <laughs> we we might ask you to set the scene whenever you do so let us know you know how much clothing you have on etc etc so the other thing that i needed to ask you about was uh well the actual bike race itself so you guys are here obviously andrew is going for a gc position you have a couple sort of stage hunter type guys as well it seems to me how do you fit into uh how do you fit into the group here uh particularly since it's your first your first go around i mean obviously you've done grand tours before uh do they just sort of throw you in the deep end or let you go into it kind of slowly how does that work Ah, I mean, we really haven't talked over the strategy for the team. Obviously, Andrew's going for the overall, and then, yeah, we have stage runners. I think, for me, I'll be thrown into a lot of different roles. I'll be thrown into supporting Andrew when it comes to the GC days, and then hopefully I'll have some days of my own to, to fly, you know, fly free and go for breakaways, and we'll see what happens. You never know. I mean, it's a tour. <laughs> the tour is the tour. Yeah. Uh, so we'll ask you this now, and then we'll ask you this again as you uh, as we move throughout the race. You've done other Grand Tours. How do you think this one's going to be different? I mean, as you said, even just sort of the, the lead up here is is quite a bit different from anything you've done before. There are, you know, there are a couple dozen different people around, reporters around right now, uh, chatting with you guys. That itself is different. How else do you think that the Tour de France is going to be different from the other Grand Tours you've done? I think the Tour will be different with the stress level in the peloton I've done you know the Giro I've done the Vuelta but I think the tour for sponsors and everything it's just so much more pressure on the riders that I think inside the peloton the stress level is going to be a bit more intense uh, I mean we'll see I don't know I haven't done it so I can't really say but that's what I think well we'll ask you that again on Monday uh, again Velo News Podcast listeners you have this to look forward to you have Nate Brown Coming to you twice a week throughout the entire Tour de France. Thanks, Nate. Thanks, guys. So Nate is one of only three American riders in this Tour de France. Hoodie, you wrote a story about this this morning, actually. All three are on the Cannondale Draypack team. They're actually using the hashtag America's team, which they've stolen from the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, <laughs> I don't think the Cowboys will mind. It's kind of weird to only have three American riders in the Tour de France. It's been um, it's been kind of a downward trend of Americans. Uh, the record is ten in one tour. It happened twice, 2011, and back in the heyday of uh, Le Mans 7-Eleven years. And but on average, there's been six, seven, eight Americans in every tour, really for almost a 20-year run. But in the last three tours, we've seen three was an all-time low from 2015. Last year, bumped back up to five. Um, 
this year back to three. Yeah, back to three yeah. this year. There's a couple of coincidental re- reasons. Uh, it was kind of a generational change. We saw some of those old guys that had been around for many years had retired. This year, a few guys uh, went to the Giro. We had six Americans in the Giro this year. Um, but it also really reflects just the international kind of caliber of the, of the Peloton these days. You're seeing uh, this year you know, record low numbers of riders from Spain. I think it's 13, mm. which is very low for Spain. Even the only country at this tour, actually, that has cons- – consistent high traditional numbers is France I think is 39 whereas you know even old traditional powerhouses Germany or excuse me uh, Belgium uh, Holland uh, and Italy Spain you know 13 15 18 riders where you know back in the day that was the Peloton and in this year's Tour de France I think there's 32 different nationalities wow Uh, one it's 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 still a little bit weird to me that we've dropped quite so far because there are other there are other you know non-western european nations that are really ascendant at this point i mean obviously the british are ascendant uh the aussies uh, <laughs> one of our aussie colleagues is making fun of us in the press room not too long ago for only having three riders you know the, the australians have tons of guys in this race uh you know orica is packed full of them they're, they're, there's a couple spread out throughout other teams um we actually caught up with matt white and Matt White is another one of the guys we're going to be chatting with a bunch throughout this Tour de France. Uh, he's a director sportif at Orica Scott and always speaks his mind, which is why we really love Whitey. Uh, yeah, when, when you talk to Whitey, a lot of times, you know, you, before a start of a stage, you'll be walking around. And a lot of times just chit-chatting with people, not really not always with the tape recorder in hand. Sometimes it'll say, hey, why do you, you know, what's going to happen in today's stage? Especially very important information for the pre, you know, the Tour de France betting pool <laughs> with the Villeneuve staffers, which I'm always, that's my main priority every morning, <laughs> scouting out who's going to win the stage. And he'll just start talking and just giving this great insight into the stage. And I'll just say, uh, why do you, can you just say that again? Let me turn on my tape recorder. <laughs> so uh, so this year we're going to turn on the tape recorder even more often. We're going to yes, turn the tape recorder You around. caught up with Whitey after uh, after their own press conference. He talked about how the team has gone from a bunch of stage hunters uh, to attackers and now really a GC team with both Chavez and Simon Yates uh, and how they're having fun at the Tour de France, which is something that Chavez said, actually. Uh, can you manage to have fun at the Tour de France. Let's listen in to Matt White. Here we are with Matt White, GC man of uh, extraordinaire for uh, Rick Scott. How many uh, Grand Tours have you done as uh, a sports director and as a rider? Uh, oof. Maybe you have to give me a couple of minutes to count There's both, but uh, this is my 10th year, 10th year as a sports director. Yeah. Yep. What does, I've always wondered, like, how does being a rider help you become a sports director? Obviously, you know the action side of a race, but... Yeah, it does, and I think certain certain types of riders uh, obviously be- had their personalities are better attracted to the role of, of sports directors as well uh, you don't hence why you don't see too many big big champions uh, as sports directors because they see things from a different way you know, a lot of the super super talented guys that everyone works hard there's some guys that are obviously blessed with a lot more talent than others and those guys who are blessed with that extreme amount of talent they they don't see what or a lot of them don't see that suffering that a young guy has taking two or three years to get his feet on the ground now usually the big stars the big stars pretty quick and I think uh, you know my role was when I was racing I was sort of one of those middle guys you know in between the big riders and, and I could relate to the older guys the big stars and also the young guys who are suffering their way through and finding their feet uh, in the world of pro cycling so I think that's, that's really helped me uh, get my feet on the ground in this game How hard is it to manage the kind of uh, ambitions and motivations of every rider you have guys like on your team the big winners that want to win is it hard to convince the other guys to go all in to help these other guys win no it's not it's not it's not on our team because I think we recruit really well and I think it boils back to recruiting it boils back to the personalities you have the, uh, around them and that, that includes staff as well we, we don't have clicks in our team we don't bring superstars with people around them you know, our young stars have, have turned pro on this team I think that's the healthiest way to do things uh, because you, then you can demand a lot of those guys because those guys have grown up in that system that's how we work that's how we work yeah. I think it's always and you've, you've always find that with teams that merge or, or teams where they come with one big champion and a group of people around him it sometimes it works 
work, sometimes it doesn't. And we, we've never been a team like that as well. And, and our GC guys are, have been homegrown, so it's it's pretty easy, actually. Matt, talk about the transition you guys have had. Unique. You started out as a as a team of stage hunters, of sprinters, uh, attackers. Yep. And now you guys are bringing really, at least to, like I just said, a team really focused on the GC. Yeah. Has that been a hard transition to make, or how, how have you had to like restructure the team? I think it's been it's been a gradual uh, process, but I think what's fast tracked it is our young talent. You know, when you look at the Yates, is what they've achieved at their age. Like in our wildest dreams, I don't think we would have thought that you know, two or three years into the second Tour de France, that they're or third Tour de France, they're riding top ten in the Tour or winning what they've won so early. So, so we've had to fast track things. I suppose we've had to buy certain guys to to complement them. Or you know, when we started, we had a we knew had a lot of young talented guys, and we had some older crew around them, and yeah, you know, your Hamans and your Tufts and those sort of guys, uh, and they're they're coming to the end of their career, but. What, what it's given us is given us six years to develop uh, you know, our next row of leaders. You know, the Daryl Impies, your Luke Durbridge's, those sort of guys. They're going to take over the, from when when our older guys retire. And what's the difference between a guy like say you got the Yates brothers? You know, they obviously have the talent and the motor. But what's the difference between having that talent and the motor and actually be able to perform and deliver those results in a race like the Grand Tours? Yeah, it, it's definitely a package deal. It's, I think it's a package deal with cycling in general. You, you have a lot of under twenty threes who are super talented. There's a, vast array of kids across the world who are very very competitive at that younger age but that whole that whole package of coming to Europe making it Europe your home making whatever team you choose to be making that an environment that you enjoy you and that it's not just at racing where were these guys for 70 to 90 days a year there's another 250 plus days a year that you're not with them and if they're not enjoying their home environment they're not enjoying the country they're living in whatever network they've created around them at home that's also part of the package of of being content because otherwise it's just not sustainable it's a tough sport we all know that and if you don't enjoy what you're doing, if you don't, if you don't love cycling, if you don't love training, you know, it's only going to get, take you so far. And so, Chavez was just saying right now, he wants to have fun during this uh, Tour de France. Can you have fun in the Tour? Yeah, I think you can. Uh, I think he's in for a bit of a shock in this first couple of days. But uh, there's not so much fun usually had in the first week uh, when he's got a number on. But look, there's also that, that in-between time, you know. I think teams react different in stressful situations, and we're a team that reacts different to others as well. So, yeah, we, we, we have a joke before the start. We have a joke after the finish. You know, we don't take ourselves too serious. And I think that's that's who we are. That's the DNA of the team. Yet, when we've got, when we've got numbers on, we're, we're just as competitive and just as cutthroat as anyone else to win the bike race. But you don't have to be that person 24-7. Uh, you know, at the start, maybe people didn't, you know, but they saw that happy fun fun go lucky side of this uh, the Australian DNA but yeah, we haven't won the races we have in the last six years from being happy go lucky all the time have we you know, there's still a lot of hard work and training and commitment from these guys all the time but I think you can do it with a smile on your face and that's what you see in the race how cutthroat it really is even like yeah. in Dauphiné this year we saw you know Richie Pork get uh, taken out by his buddy through you know and that's racing right once once the race is on it's, it's yeah. all there there's no friendship yeah look Obviously, teams have certain ambitions and, and objectives that do align, and we saw that with Richie the last days of the Dolphin. But racing's racing, you know, and, and I think the sport has changed considerably uh, for the good over the last 15 years. And you, know, when you look at where cycling was 15, 20 years ago; it was a real, it was a Western European sport. You know, there was a few countries that dominated cycling, and you know, there was four or five Spanish teams, four or five Italian teams, and teams from Belgium, Holland. Now it's it's a really international sport, and so those alliances aren't the same. You know, the, when you look at the breakdown of the peloton here at the Tour, it's, it's an international, not only international win, it's an international field. And that's what's changed. Uh, and obviously, you know, the, the pressure with television, you know, we've got start to finish live television this year. You know, that changes things. Mm-hmm. You know, before, back in the Giro, we knew the television would come over at halfway when the helicopter would fly in. You know, it's, <laughs> here comes the TV. That's time, where, time that's to where race, the time to race. You know, that's, that's the difference with the sport. And it's, it's a different world. It's, you know, it's still professional cycling, but these guys are racing less they're training more specific and when they're racing they're racing to win yeah alright good stuff Matt we'll catch up to you again during the tour thanks a lot appreciate Pleasure. it right, Velofix is proud to support the Action Hagen's Berman cycling team one of the world's leading cycling development projects that has sent 21 riders to the world tour Hoodie, this tour feels a bit weird to me. 
<laughs> I know it feels a bit weird to you. What is this weirdness that we are feeling? Yeah, there's kind of just this... Um, it's kind of a, 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 a tour that just seems uh, out of place. I don't know. I'm just getting this weird vibe. You know, we're, we're in Germany. Um, it's kind of this... Uh, non-traditional tour course really don't know what's going to happen there's kind of some weird undertones going on with uh you know these doping cases we know there's some uncertainty you know can we believe these guys you know we've been battling and banging our heads against the wall for 10 20 years you know can we believe these guys and when you think maybe you can then you realize you know maybe not you know fancy bears and then cardoso you know we had a couple positive before the giro they're going faster than ever before so you kind of like going man you know what am I actually watching? And then just the, 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 the fact that, uh, you know, uh, that this tour is going, I mean, I don't want to dwell on this, but just the whole undercurrent of these, uh, what's been happening in Europe this summer with all these uh, terrorist attacks, man. <laughs> I'm like, I'm kind of, I don't know what's going to happen in this tour both during the race and after. I'm hoping nothing bad happens, of course. But We're just getting a weird vibe. We're yeah. getting a weird vibe I in Newport. Germany, man. Could just be Germany. <laughs> we love Germany. It's just... <laughs> It's different. Yeah. I don't speak a damn word of German. Neither do you. That that could be part of the problem. We are totally useless here in Germany. Uh, nonetheless, very, very excited for the Tour to start tomorrow. I think maybe that's why we feel weird. The first couple days before the Tour de France, at least for the reporters, I think probably also for the riders and staff, are just a little bit weird. You just want to get the thing started. And that's, that's very much where we are right now. Uh, it, it's just the week before... Yeah, it feels it feels like, you know, the run up to exam day. It can almost feel more stressful than when things actually start rolling. So Saturday afternoon, actually here, it'll be Saturday morning for many of our listeners in the United States. Uh, we kick off with that 14-kilometer time trial. Uh, let's just make a quick prediction right here. We'll make we'll make a quick prediction and then we'll uh, cl- we'll close out for the day. Who takes the first yellow jersey of the 2017 Tour de France? I'm going to go on a limb, and I'm going to say, uh, I think Richard Port. Oh. <laughs> That's a bold one. That's almost as bold as my pick for Fabio Aru for the yellow jersey in Paris. Uh, I, I, I'm i going to play it safe this time, actually. Uh, I'm going to try to win the Villainous betting pool for Saturday. And I'm going to say Tony Martin. Yeah. Home victory. Home that's, time that's trial. The easy pick. That's the easy pick. Is you know, I'm sure he's been focusing on this ever since they announced that that the start was going to be in Germany for the first time since 1987 when it started in Berlin. Tony Martin really wants to win this thing. I think with Rowan Dennis not here, that's an important distinction. With Rowan Dennis not here, Martin's got to be got to be the top favorite plus with uh if it's wet roads actually i'll take away my uh richie port pick <laughs> it's supposed to rain hedging. he's he, hedging he's not gonna he's not gonna take any risk on wet roads tomorrow so my my uh my uh hedge bet would be uh kirianka kirianka is a good one kirianka it, it's it's an interesting time trial it's, it's 14k it's sort of you know it's longer than a prologue so the sprinters that we would normally sort of maybe put in that category are it's gonna be a little long for them uh, but short for some of the real sort of diesely time trial guys. So Martin and Kirianka, that's what we're going with. Uh, we will be back on Monday, stage three of the Tour de France for more tour. Where are we going to be on Monday? I think we'll be in Luxembourg, back into France. Uh, it's a big croissant. Yes. That'll cheer me up. Back to croissant land. We'll catch you then.